Good morning. I'm Brian Kiley. I have the pleasure of being the minister here, and you have the pleasure of being the congregation this morning. Welcome to the Unitarian Church of Edmonton. It's great to have you all here. Many of you have managed to make it back. Last night, this place was Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, our annual church dinner, and it was magically transformed by the hands of so many volunteers. And now it looks like normal, except there's still a toadstool. (laughs) It was a wonderful, wonderful evening, thanks to the willing hands of so many different people. The Unitarian Church of Edmonton is a liberal, multi-generational religious community. We celebrate a rich mosaic of free-thinking, spiritually questing individuals who have joined in common support and action. And we welcome diversity, including diversity of beliefs, from divine believers to humanists, from atheists to pagans to agnostics. We believe in the compassion of the human heart, the warmth of community, and the pursuit of justice and the search for meaning in our lives. We gather in gratitude this morning on traditional Cree lands that are now part of Treaty 6 and shared by many nations. Treaties are the things that make our world work, not just between First Nations, but treaties, agreements, are the things that make democracy work, that make stoplights functional, uh, that make so many basic things. Is when, when citizens agree to follow certain rules, that changes the world and brings a certain amount of order and safety. So we need to honor our treaties, all of them, not just the ones with First Nations. If you're new here, we invite you to stay after for coffee hour, and ooh, we have leftovers from last night. So there's some pasta with a basil cream sauce, and there's a great big green salad, and there's surprisingly lots of desserts left. So please stay, enjoy some coffee and some food. Oh, yeah, and if you are new here and you haven't been to the information table, there's some good people out there who will give you lots of information or come and talk to me. And so as we begin our special hour together, I invite you to quiet your electronic devices. Would you please join me in some opening words, number 596. You'll find them in the back of your hymn book, 596. Let us cultivate boundless goodwill. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none in anger or ill will wish another harm. Even as a mother watches over her child, so with boundless mind should one cherish all living beings. Radiating friendliness over the whole world. I'd like to invite Kathy Stanley forward to light our chalice. Kathy slaved over the Alice desserts and helped in the kitchen as well. But uh, Kathy did an amazing job, as you will see. And save one of the mushroom cupcakes for me, please. <laughs> Toadstool cupcake. It's being tough today. There you go. It is Mother's Day. It's probably one thing we all have in common. I'm assuming you all had mothers. Just a guess on my part. 
But Mother's Day, well, Donna Reed died in the 50s. Mother's Day is complicated. Mother's Day is tricky. Not too many of us have a complete collection of hallmark moments. We may have strong feelings about our mothers or our children, as if you are mothers and all of that. And you know that it's just not the arts and flowers and all of that time that it's supposed to be. It's complicated. It's one of the toughest jobs in the world, being a parent. Because you never know if you're getting it right. There's no manual. Well, there are manuals, but they're not really useful. (laughs) And you're always trying to figure it out. So whether your Mother's Day is easy or hard, whether your memories are fond or just complicated, I want to light a candle to recognize that. And I want to invite... There I go again. I want to invite Audrey Brooks to come forward. Reverend Audrey Brooks, our chaplain in this congregation, and I'm asking her because, you know, she's kind of the mother of this church. Our opening hymn this morning is number 95, There Is More Love Somewhere. 9-5, I invite you to stand if you're willing or able. have a story for today, but before I tell the story, I want to do a little bit of a shout out again about the dinner last night. Kind of like Mother's Day, there was a point where things got a little complicated in the kitchen. And the shout out, I mean, aside to all of our volunteers, is that uh, several of the kids, the youth group who were attending last night, jumped in. And uh, they made the little appetizer sandwiches, and they served the soup and delivered them to all the tables. And whenever he asked them for help, the answer was yes. So, thank you. 
And I know the ones of you who weren't there would have helped too. So I want to tell you a story about a girl named Amelia. Now, Amelia always admired and wished that she could have superpowers like Wonder Woman or be able to do magic like Harry Potter. She wished for these things a lot, and she was hoping that if she ever got those superpowers, she would use them to make the world a better place. And she thought about the guy who always sat on the same bench in the schoolyard and never smiled and ate his lunch all along. Or she thought about the big girl who bullied little kids. Or she thought about the old, decrepit, beat-up park she used to walk upon, she would walk by on her way home, thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could clean that up and turn it into a park that we kids could play in again? Well, that night, she was just about to fall asleep in bed when suddenly her fairy godmother appeared. And she said, hello, my dear. And Amelia said, who are you? She said, I'm your fairy godmother. Really? Yes, I am. What are you wishing for? You know, I really wish I had superpowers or could do magic so I could help the world be a better place. Well, my dear, there's nothing I would like to do more than give you magical powers. But, oh, thank you so much, said Amelia, and she fell right asleep. The next morning she woke up, remembered the whole conversation, and wondered what her new superpowers were. She sort of wiggled her fingers a little bit and wiggled her nose and and said some magic-sounding words, but nothing happened. Hmm. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to find out as as the day unfolds. I'm just going to have to go with it. So she got dressed and she went to school, past the decrepit old park. And at lunchtime, she saw that same sad boy eating lunch alone on a bench. And so from across the schoolyard, she said, I'm going to make him smile. And she wiggled her fingers. Nothing happened. Well, maybe I have to get closer. So she walked up till she was about two meters away and did it again, and nothing happened. So she went up even closer and stood right next to him and gave him her biggest, brightest smile. And he smiled back. And she said, can I have lunch with you today? And he said, yeah. And he moved over and made room on the bench. And she sat down with him and they they laughed a lot and they talked a lot. And she learned that his name was Bobby and that his father had died that year and his mother had moved to this new school and, and to this area with a new school and that he didn't have any friends. And well, from that day on, they had lunch almost every day. And a few days later, they were walking around the schoolyard and she saw the big kid bullying the little kids. Now, Amelia had had all the training that you get in grade school about bullying, and she knew what she was supposed to do, but she never had to. So, she, I'm going to take care of her this time. (laughs) Nothing happened. So, she just walked up to her and went, hey, knock it off. Leave those kids alone. And then she took the two little kids with her and Bobby and said, come with me and walked away and sat down with him and said, look, if she starts to bother you again, don't react, don't respond, just ignore her, walk away. And if she follows you or keeps doing it, go to one of the playground monitors. And if that keeps going on even after that, well, then go see Mr. Crichton in the office and he'll take care of it. And those kids were never bullied again. 
So the next day she was walking home feeling pretty good about the superpowers. And she passed the park. She went, okay, let's do something about the park. But the park was a big space. So she figured she had to do something really big. So... And nothing happened, except my stool got messed up. <laughs> now I'll fix that later. Nothing happened. So she went, well, maybe I have to get it started. So she went home and grabbed a box of trash bags and went back to the park and started picking up some of the litter. And some of the other kids came by and said, hey, what's going on? And she said, well, I, I, I think we should have this park back. We're going to save this park. And they went, Okay, so they came in, they started pulling weeds and, and picking up the rest of the trash, and then some parents saw them and said, hey, what are you doing? They said, we're cleaning up the park, we want our park back. The parents went, okay. And one parent called the city and started bugging them about getting new playground equipment, and a couple other parents started fixing up the broken down picnic benches, and another parent came by with a lawnmower and started cutting the grass. And then when it all finished, they held a big celebration picnic in the park. Well, at the end of that, Amelia was pretty tired. So she went home, climbed into bed, and the good fairy appeared, just as she was about to fall asleep, and said, hi, Amelia, how are you doing? She said, oh, fairy godmother, thank you so much for my magical powers. It's made such a difference. And she said, you know, you interrupted me that first night. I was saying, I want to give you magic powers, but my wand is broken. I didn't give you anything. These were all the magic powers you were born with. Kindness, bravery, and determination. It's you who's changing the world. Oh, said Amelia, and she fell asleep. Each week we take a collection to support the work of this church. We are a self-sustaining organization. So we support the work of this church, but we also know that we reside in a community and in a world. So one half of the loose cash that comes in every week is given to an outside organization. And sometimes it's local, and sometimes it's national, and sometimes it's global. For this month, we're collecting money for, yes, damn, I've forgotten the whole new name, uh, Youth Emergency Support Services, Youth Empowerment Support Services which is a group that's amazing at helping uh, teenage kids who are on the streets, finding support and finding a way through. Kind of like Amelia, actually. Uh, so we'll take uh, a collection to support them, and we'll hear another song from Maria.
Thank you, Maria. As we receive our offering, would you please remain seated and join in the offering song. From you I give, to you I receive. From you I receive, to you I give, together we share. Each Sunday, we take some time to acknowledge the joys and concerns that touch our lives. We do this with a little ritual, no magic, except the magic we create, like Amelia. We invite people to come forward and light a candle for a particular joy or a concern or whatever on your mind. And we do it in two ways. First, we invite anyone who wishes to light a silent candle to come up. And today, we're going to have spoken candles as well. So if you want to tell us why you're lighting your candle... Well, you can come up. I'll ask you to come up separately. So if you'd like to light a silent candle now, please come forward. I have one delight as well. One of the uh, pleasant things that happens at the uh, annual dinner is the presentation of the W.H. Alexander Award, which is uh, an award named for one of the founders of this congregation back in the early part of the 20th century. And it recognizes unsung heroes, volunteers, people who don't do it for the recognition but do it because it needs to be done. And uh, to my great pleasure uh, this year, the award was given to a bunch of guys. I call them the Wednesday gang. They come in every Wednesday morning, sometimes all of them, sometimes some of them, and they just, you know, fix stuff. That's why all the lights are working and why there's little asphalt bits by the door where it's starting to sink. And, and occasionally they patch roofs and fix electricity and they put in all of the, well, a lot of the, the uh, new lighting and things like this. And three of them are in the room today. I'm not going to introduce them, but I'm going to say, stand up, you guys, and get applauded. Yeah. And as one of them said, they also solve all the problems of the world during coffee break. I'd like to lead us into a time of meditation. First, by inviting you to remain seated and sing hymn number 123, Spirit of Life.
The words for the meditation come from Adrian Rich. No one ever told us we have to study our own lives, make our lives a study as if learning natural history or music, that we should begin with the simple exercises first and slowly go on to trying the hard ones, practicing till strength and accuracy become one with daring to leap into transcendence. And in fact, we can't live like that. We take on everything at once before we've even begun to read or mark time. We're forced to begin in the midst of the hardest movement, the one already sounding as we are born. I invite you into a time of silence and then Maria will sing for us again. Children are born eager to learn. Curious by nature, you can't keep them from exploring as they try to comprehend every single part of their environment. Everything is a wonder. 
I was watching a little eight-month-old lad at our minister's retreat about 10 days ago. And little Dara would sit or stand in our 30-people circle and look wide-eyed at everything and everyone. Everything he could get hold of got pulled or played with or tasted. Whether it was jewelry or a loose strand of hair, it got handled and examined as he was passed arm to arm. Even as he was falling asleep in his mom and dad's embrace, he was reaching out to touch one more thing, eyes half closed. If you spend any time around young people, you'll know that they are born with this incredible curiosity, whether it's examining bugs in the yard or asking why the sky is blue. And it lasts. I saw it with the teenagers in my house as they started discussing the election issues in our most recent Alberta go-around. Sometimes they were testing ideas. Sometimes they were asking what platform points meant. They were learning that citizenship implies responsibilities. They were forming thoughtful opinions, completely on their own without any input from me. Now they're looking forward to voting in the next election. They are Jason Kenney's worst nightmare. (laughs) We grow by asking questions, not by being handed answers. That's one of the challenges I personally face as a male mansplaining parent. I like knowing things, and I like showing others that I know things and that I can do things. So I have to rein myself in when children start asking for stuff. When I'm at my best, I get them to work the problem and formulate their own questions, to work on their own curiosity, help them figure out where to look for answers without giving it to them outright. As a parent, it's less my job to know and more my job to encourage them to find out. I'm still working on that. One of our early 19th century leaders, William William Ellery Channing, once wrote, the great end in religious instruction is not to stamp our minds upon the young, but to stir up their own. Not to make them see with our eyes but to look inquiringly and steadily with their own. In a world, the great end is to awaken the soul, to excite and cherish the spiritual life. That's number 652 in the back of your hymnal if you want to read the full passage. The American First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt once said, I think if at a child's birth... A mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift. That gift would be curiosity. Now, curiosity can spark scientific research or a thirst for hard knowledge or the desire to have skills or a desire to excel. It can cause us to take risks in life or love just to see where it's going to lead. But another area where curiosity can spark us is in the area of personal spirituality. Where do I come from? Cosmically. Which often implies, what's my purpose for being here? Followed by, what happens after I die? Of course, all those answers are intensely personal. Spirituality, of course, is a very slippery thing. 
Some people reject the whole idea. That's fine. That's their choice. But maybe we can be curious about this slipperiness for a few minutes. Now, first off, spirituality is not a thing. You can't walk into Canadian Tire and buy an extra-large plastic-wrapped package of spirituality. Second, it's larger than any theology or any philosophy. Like many things in religion and ideas, words literally fail to describe the spiritual experience. And third, there is no single prescribed path to spiritual success. Okay, check that. There are lots of prescribed paths, but in reality, no one path fits everyone. Each spiritual moment is unique to the person who is having it. And finally, sadly, there are no guarantees. You can practice any discipline rigorously and faithfully and still never have that transformative peak aha experience where one suddenly slips the bonds of time and space. And even if you're not practicing, sometimes that experience just arrives and smacks you upside the head and says, pay attention. So let's take a little deeper look at those four qualities. Spirituality is not a thing. Google it, you'll find at least 25 definitions on the first page alone, all of them different. And that's easily explainable. Most of us, I expect, have done some kind of personality test in our lives, Meyer-Briggs or Enneagrams or personality dimensions, that's the one with the colors. Each of us has a preferred way of taking in information and processing that information. Some do best when we read, some by hearing, others prefer visual or experiential learning. The point applies nicely to spirituality. Each of us is comfortable with the definition that speaks to our own idea of life, speaks to our own preferences and strength of personality. Now, the good news is that spirituality is big enough to accommodate all of these things. There is a spiritual experience available to every person if they'll let it happen. The bad news is you kind of have to go find it for yourself. Like I said, you can't buy it off the shelf. Because it's so personal, it cannot be fully captured by words or images. Spiritual leaders of every religious stripe have tried to teach their experience over the centuries. One of my favorites is St. Augustine, who lived an absolute dissolute life, had this great revelatory moment, spent his life trying to get back to it, and then started teaching people, you know, I tried all those sinful things, and they don't work, so don't bother. Thanks, dude. I uh, have spent my life disagreeing with him. Now, some of those teachings have formed practices like prayers and rituals, and Elsewhere, disciplines have evolved like yoga and tai chi and Zen meditation and sweat lodge ceremonies and even the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Talk to me about that sometimes. All of those have proven useful for some individuals who are suited to that approach and to the theology behind it. But even that doesn't guarantee a spiritual connection. Some will follow those practices. They'll gain a benefit of maybe some calmness or just a sense of peace, but they'll, they'll never have that magical moment. Why? Well, it's practice. It's the practice. It's not the experience. 
The experience ultimately lies inside the discipline and comes in magical moments, maybe only once in a life, maybe a few times. And maybe it requires the catalyst of curiosity. Have you ever walked in our labyrinth or read tarot cards? Both of those start explicitly with curiosity. You begin with a question before you enter the labyrinth or before you shuffle the cards. You begin with a question and then you see what comes up in the practice of meditation. And the the meditation is simply saying, you've got this in the back of your mind and now you're going to quiet your body by moving through this or by reading these cards or however. And sometimes an answer comes. Sometimes it's the answer you expected. Sometimes it's the one you always knew deep inside but really didn't want to let yourself see. Or maybe nothing comes because you're not ready for the answer yet. There is no promise of a peak moment, no matter what you do. The transcendent experience is beyond all practice, all religion and philosophy. It is a thing unto itself. However, these preparations tend to lead us to a place where we can at least realize that there's a spiritual moment happening to us. When we get ourselves out of the way, when we open ourselves to this kind of revelation, wherever it comes from. But some of us block those experiences, turn away from those opportunities, get anxious about them. Not everyone embraces their curiosity. Curiosity can be a bit of a scary thing. Some of us are anxious about what might be uncovered. There's someone close to me living in a faraway city who is so afraid of losing control for a single second that she routinely turns away from anything that could lead to an ecstatic moment. Ecstatic moment. She lives in a splendid, closed isolation defined by the mundane and the controllable. I guess that works for her, but I have my doubts. I try not to be judgmental, but I find it a little sad. But hey, it's her life, not mine. Still, culture is actually on the side of her choice. I believe that we live in a society that actually discourages the spiritual. Ours is a practical world with jobs and schedules and bills and expectations and politics. And the disciplines most of us learn are task-focused, designed to help us be productive and responsible citizens, and of course, active consumers. Spiritually rounds us out exactly because it is outside the practical or the functional. It's highly individualized, even if the aha moment comes in a crowd. I remember once standing on the edge of the ocean with a friend one day. Waves were crashing. It was quite beautiful. But suffice it to say that these few moments standing there left me with tears streaming down my cheeks at the awesomeness of the universe. My friend's response was noncommittal. That was nice. That was pretty. Now, in fact, this friend is quite a spiritual person, but the things in her life did not all converge in that moment to make it transformative, as it did for me. The last little um, 
bit I wish to do is note the cycle of spirituality. It's, it's something that's not really brought up. I was actually talking with one of my daughters last night who's kind of feeling herself in a dull place right now. And I was able to say, ooh, ooh, I'm talking about that tomorrow. So now you get it. We aren't curious every moment. Neither are we spiritual every moment. Sometimes our senses are alive and open and sometimes not. And that's part of a natural cycle. The common four-stage cycle is usually seen circular in nature like the seasons, very much like our medicine wheel banner that we were presented with a few weeks ago. The journey around the circle begins with emptying, with shedding the thoughts of what we must do like so many falling leaves in autumn. Things are a little dull in that point. The second stage is a fallow or wintry time. It's often a time of ashes. It's called the via negativa. It's often a time when we try to rush through it because we're taught that darkness is bad and we should always be seeking the light and the warmth. But there are lessons in the cold and darkness. It's a time of rest. It's a time of quiet renewal or at least preparing ourselves for renewal. All the major religious stories contain accounts of the time of death and journeys to the underworld where the rebirth can occur. The learning happens in that place. Now, all these cycles, by the way, there's no allotted time span. It's not three months in each one. Some of them are quite short. Some are quite long. It's different for everyone. Now, when the time is right, we enter the via transformativa, the, the cycle upwards towards spring and rebirth. I looked out my window today and saw that the elm trees were finally, the buds were bursting into leaves today. And I'm going, yeah, I'd love that day, whenever that happens. That happens to us too. It seems like the winter is never going to end, that spring isn't really here. And then suddenly one day we feel that new green and our life starts to move on. We burst back into the time of light with new energy, new ideas, new purpose, and transformed by the journey. And then finally, there's the time of summer, the Via Positiva, our time in the so-called normal energetic space when we go about our daily tasks, but we're still buoyed by this fresh green energy that pushed us into that part of the cycle. Here's my final point. No path promises answers. Rather, they're only tools designed to train us to welcome the spirit, however we end up defining that elusive term. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Asian philosopher, speaks of mindfulness. And that really is the key. That, this is the piece that opens all the possibilities. Not being mindful about everything we do, although he has a famous passage about learning to just drink tea and not think about something else. But being mindful, understanding that the spiritual moment will not come our way until we clear some space and are mindful about what is possible, attentive enough to give it our full concentration when it does arrive. It needs curiosity as the catalyst, as the trigger, the, the key that unlocks the door. It needs us to ask the questions like, why? But with an openness and a freedom, not with anxiety and why me or anything like that. Just this kind of positive, curious, why? Maybe we get an answer. 
The life of the Spirit is about possibility. It's there for any one of us. But first, we have to become curious about it. We need to be looking at life with wide eyes and a desire to find some insight, something to support us as we move through daily life and through challenging times. Amen. Our chalice is extinguished, but its light lives on in the minds and the hearts and the souls of each one of you. So carry it with you when you leave this place and share it with those you know, with those you love, and most especially with those you've yet to meet. Let's sing Carry the Flame. That's right. That's what we do next. (laughs) And we don't do the extra version. (laughs) Carry the flame of peace and love until we meet again. Carry the flame of peace and love until we meet again.